But it's just so glorious. It's so, it's so deep and profound. And, and really, you guys, like, I, I've been listening to a lot of lectures on covenant theology. I listen to Lig Duncan. I listen to uh, Richard Barcellus. I listen to uh, uh, just unknown pastors, you know, that, that, that are on YouTube and different places talking about covenant theology. And one thing I noticed... Uh, and I'm like, I definitely didn't do that, <laughs> is that they were very good to get to the material. <laughs> and I definitely didn't do that. And so um, because, I, you know, I kind of introduced us back into covenant theology by just exploring some of the implications and the importance of covenant theology. And we talked about all those, you know, the inter- intertestamental gospel, the fact that covenant theology uniquely displays a Christ-centered hermeneutic over all of Scripture, you know, those kinds of of, of things. And so that's why we're kind of taking our time. But today, I wanted to give you my definition of, uh, of covenant theology. And, um, and, and so let me just read this to you. And uh, this is going to be kind of a long paragraph that I'm going to read. Don't be intimidated by it. You have the tape or the recording. I always say tape. Uh, but I wanted to just read this and then just explore the components of this definition, okay, and tell you why I define it this way. Um, this is what I wrote. I said, covenant, the covenant with Abraham is a dichotomous covenant bound by maledictory oath that promises salvation to Abraham's spiritual seed through faith in Abraham's messianic seed, resulting in a heavenly inheritance while simultaneously promising patriarchal blessings to Abraham's physical seed and an earthly inheritance through obedience. Somebody want to take a stab at repeating all that? (laughs) So this is what we're exploring today. So the first thing to notice about this definition, though, is that I use the word dichotomous, okay? And what do you think I mean by that? What is a dichotomy? What is a dichotomy? Yeah, it's it's two right. It's 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 splitting something in half, so to speak, right? It's it means there's two parts to it. There's two aspects to it, okay? And so when I say that it is first and foremost a dichotomous covenant, what I'm referring to is that the covenant with Abraham really operates on two levels, okay? And we've seen a little bit of this before. Turn with back to Galatians chapter four, just to see the justification for this, because I think you have it kind of all over scripture, but you have it here in Galatians chapter 4, kind of explicit, okay, so that we have a justification for speaking of the Abrahamic covenant along these two levels or these, this dichotomous way. It says in uh, Galatians chapter 4 verse 21, maybe I'll put that up there just so that y'all can remember, 21 and following, right? It says, tell me, uh, uh, where am I at? Yeah, Galatians 4.21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman according to the promise, or through the promise. Now, this is interesting. This is allegorically speaking. Now, that's, a, that's a, what they call a crux interpretum. What in the world does that phrase mean? A lot of ink has been spilt over that little phrase right there. This is allegorically speaking, right? And, and I don't know that I'll end the debate today, but he says, for these women, notice the italicized, if you have an NASB especially, uh, the word women there is not in the original. So if you have an ESV, you have no help here, right? Because the word women is not, <clears throat> not in not the not the original text, but it says for these we could just say for these are two covenants. Or these what? Well, these two sons, these two women. Yeah, something like that. That's why the NASB gives you a translate or interpretation. These two women. That's fine. That's that's satisfactory. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And that, and then says, she is our mother. So she represents Sarah. So right there, we're being told that in Abraham, two covenants, and then I want to say two covenants are represented because really in reality, there are two principles represented here. That's because the Abrahamic covenant operates on two levels. Okay, on the one level, you have the children of the flesh. You have the surface level of the covenant. 
and everything that comes with that. And uh, we'll come back to this. We're going to explore this in depth, but I just wanted to show you how it is the theologians come across with this understanding that in covenant, in Abraham, we need to think of it dichotomously, right? It's not just one monolithic thing. Uh, For example, it is not just a covenant of grace and everyone in the Abrahamic covenant is elect of God and saved by grace through faith, right? Ishmael wasn't, right? Uh, You know, there's, you know, uh, Jesus told the Pharisees, don't say to yourself, you have Abraham as your father. (laughs) So apparently ethnically being, you know, uh, 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 you know, physically related to Abraham was not enough to put you into the covenant of grace, to save you by grace through faith. You see? So obviously it is not a monolith. There is some sort of dichotomy here that exists in this covenant. Any questions about that? Anybody? No stupid questions either. Because I know these are not easy issues, but then again, you're not in an easy church either. Oh, come on. Only my wife would insinuate that I would be so mean <laughs> as to say something like that. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, that's that's his definition of a covenant. Okay. Yeah. Would you say that? I'm just thinking about the blood aspect of mm-hmm. Abraham. That's right. Mm-hmm. That that right. Blood. So, so in my definition. You know, I say, you know, covenant with Abraham is dichotomous covenant. Now, here it is. Bound by maledictory oath. So the next thing, the next aspect of this definition is that it involves a, well, right. Turn to Genesis chapter 15, okay, because that's where we really come to see this. And then somebody... Well, you just go to Genesis 15. We'll get ahead of ourselves here. But in Genesis chapter 12, we saw that the covenant with Abraham was introduced initially. Interesting enough, you're quoting O. Palmer Robertson. O. Palmer Robertson says in his definition of a covenant that it is sovereignly administered, right? And so we saw that in the Abrahamic covenant. It was a sovereign administration so far as God, you know, the the. The covenant with Abraham was on the basis of election. You know, uh, uh, what does Joshua say? You know, Joshua tells us in Joshua, I think it's 24, that Abraham was a, a, a moon worshiper, that he was a pagan, right? He was, he was from pagan roots. <laughs> he wasn't looking for God, you know what I mean? It wasn't like Abraham came because he heard an altar call. No, he, he was sovereignly chosen by God, awakened by God, summoned by God, and through, uh, through the word of God, through theophany, God appearing to him, speaking to him in a vision, and all of this, God called him to himself, right? I think it's in Nehemiah that it even says that God chose Abraham. So, so you know, Abraham was the product of sovereign grace. So the covenant is sovereignly administered, uh, at least at that salvific level. But at the same time, in terms of a malediction and blood, you see that right here. In uh, Genesis 15, you have, oh, this is so important right here. Look at verse 8, because verses 1 through 7, God is repeating some of the essential elements that he introduced in Genesis 12. Mainly, I'll make a great nation out of you. I will multiply your descendants. I will give you a land, right? All of those things. Um, And then we find out from Genesis, uh, where is it? Genesis 17, that included in that concept of land is also a king, right? Because it says, you know, Kings will flow from you, right? Uh, God tells Abraham. He doesn't tell him that in chapter 12. He doesn't tell him that in chapter 15. He tells him that in chapter 17. So it's almost like as God is reaffirming, reiterating, um, uh, sort of, you know, reestablishing his covenant with Abraham, more and more details of the covenant are coming out. And so that's what's going on here. And in verse 8, uh, Abraham asks, the, this is, we did this in family devotions last night, and in verse 8, Abraham asked the question we would all have asked God at this, at this moment. What is it? O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? In other words, how can I know for sure that the promises that you are making to me are going to come to pass? They seem 
outrageous. <laughs> right? Abraham's already getting old. God is talking about descendants coming from him so many that they will, you know, be like the, the, the stars of the sky. Right? I mean, it's like an innumerable multitude will come from him. And he's wondering, what? <laughs> What's that? He doesn't have one yet. And so he's wondering, how is this going to happen, right? So he was crippled by fear and unbelief in a sense, right? And, wonder, and just doubt, how is this going to happen? And so he asks God, how will I know? What is the certainty of the covenant? What is the, um, what is the strength of the covenant? Right here. Strength of the covenant is the malediction, or we could call the maledictory oath that God makes here. And let's just read it. Uh, with us. Uh, what does that mean, guys? Somebody knows what that means. What does malediction mean? Blood oath. Blood oath. Good. There you go. Right. Malediction means something bad will happen to you. Right. So when someone takes a maledictory oath, what they're what they're taking an oath, they're swearing, right, on the basis of the potential of something bad happening to them. Right. So it's like, you know, it's an. That's right. That's right. Make it, take it to the Sunday school level, right? <laughs> Amen. Amen. That's right. And, and essentially, that's what happens here. So in verse 9, it says, you know, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each uh, uh, half opposite uh, the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. It's really, really fascinating. I'll tell you right now, man, get a concordance when you go home. Look at uh, verse 11, because don't you picture it in your mind? Picture it in your mind. There's Abraham driving these birds away. They're trying to eat the carcasses. You see? It's like, why, why did God do that? And why does Scripture record that? Right? It's so interesting. Why? And I always thought, oh, that's kind of funny, you know, <laughs> get away, you know, just shoo, birds, right? I think it's kind of prophetic that Abraham did that, and you find that in the law. You find that in the law, God repeats this idea of driving the birds of prey away. How? Another maledictory oath, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but in, uh, in places like Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, God promises that on the basis of disobedience, that their corpses would be laid waste and the birds of prey would come and feast on them and it says, and no one will be there to drive them away. <laughs> so it's kind of like proleptic, prophetic, right, of the curses that will come by breaking God's law. So anyway, and then we read what happens here. First of all, you have these animals being split or rent asunder. So they're torn in half. Right, And that is your malediction. That is your blood oath. That's, your, that's the blood oath right there. That's, the, that's the, uh, the covenant that O. Palmer Robertson talks about, administered by blood. So blood has to be in a covenant uh, most of the time. And it, it's either symbolized or it's actually shed. So we see that especially like in the old covenant. What's the old covenant? Now, what's the Old Covenant? When the Bible says the Old Covenant, what is that talking about? Uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The Law of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. The Old Covenant is the Mosaic Covenant. And in the book of Hebrews, we are told in Hebrews chapter 9 that everything had to be sprinkled with blood at the ratification of the Old Covenant. You see? So it was in the same way there was a maledictory oath even with the Old Covenant. But here, notice what happens. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. That's interesting, right? Uh, Just the theme there, terror, great darkness. It's almost as if like this, we're entering into the realm here of judgment and, um, and what God is going to foretell. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not uh, theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. What's that referring to? That's referring to Egypt. So in this covenant, God also prophesied of what will take place in order for, uh, in, in the process and in the progress of revelation and in the progress of redemption, you know, the, the, um, the, enslave, the enslavement in Egypt and the uh, consequent exodus is 
part of that. It says, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Wow, that's, a, wow, that's, that's huge, right? It's almost like God has ordained a certain amount of you know, iniquity on behalf of, of the seed of the serpent, of the wicked. He has ordained that as part of his salvation and judgment that, 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 he will, uh, that he will accomplish on behalf of his people. But he says, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, uh, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and then it says in verse 19, the Canaanite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Gerashite, and the Jebusite. Why do we read those funny names? You're like, we're supposed to remember those names, man? <laughs> it's like, well, because here's the deal that in the covenant with Abraham, what is also promised is conquest. Right? What's also promised here is the conquest of the people of God over their enemies. Yeah, 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 that's right, because everything that happens to Abraham on the physical plane, everything that happens to him on the physical, or what they call the geophysical plane, not just physically in his descendants and his body and his personal life, but also geographically in the land of Canaan, all of that is typological of what takes place spiritually. You see what I'm saying? So just like when he goes into the land of Canaan, he dispossesses his enemies, that is also spiritually, prophetically speaking of the fact that the kingdom of God is of such a nature that when we inherit the kingdom, we will dispossess our enemies. You see what I'm saying? That that, that the new heavens and the new earth, which all of this points to, is also simultaneously a conquest for the people of God, right? And so that's why Revelation says things like, you know, nothing unclean will be there. God is going to drive out all of the unclean nations from himself, right? Uh, when we inherit the eternal kingdom. Uh, yes, sir. I'll come back so to this. Don't so worry. So would you say, uh, you, you made a, a comment in regard to the Amorites, uh, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Would you say that Israel's return and a conquering of the nation would be somewhat of a symbolic partial crushing of the serpent's head? Mm. I don't know that I would make that connection as much as I just see that uh, more generally of just the uh, the victory of God's people. I think it's rooted to that. You know, I think they're just connected to that. I'd be careful to say like this is actually yeah, no, just a picture of that or you know typological of that. You know what I mean? Um, but sure. So here we have you know this incredible ritual that is maledictory in nature because to pass between animals that are ripped asunder, the person passing through those animals is saying that this will happen to me if I transgress the covenant. See what I'm saying? That's the oath. That's the oath that's being taken here. God is promising that these promises, remember what was the question that set this all up? How will I know? And you will know because when God makes an oath like this, it will literally take the death of God, right? Uh, it, if, it's, if it's broken or if it's transgressed or if God doesn't make good on his promises. Now, what does that immediately speak to us about? Anybody? I mean, there is no death of God, but you know what I mean? What's that? Yeah, the promise is sure, but when it speaks of God saying that it will take, like, he, he would die himself if these things would not come to pass, right? Yeah, the, yeah. The, than himself, yeah, that's good. I mean, ultimately, right, um, ultimately, uh, this was fulfilled by Christ, who actually did walk the path of death. You guys ever struggled with, what does this mean when it says the smoking, what does it say? The smoking oven and the flaming torch? I mean, is this just the Bible trying to confuse us or what? <laughs> right? No, not at all. Uh, yeah, no, not at all. I think what this is becomes indicative of, especially the connection here with Egypt and the Exodus, 
This becomes indicative, I believe, of the pillar of fire by night and the, and the, and the cloud of glory by day. Okay? And literally, as these, these symbols go marching through, and I think you know, Meredith, Meredith Klein is right in calling this a death path. Right, a path of death. You split the animals, and these elements go in between the animals. And what do they symbolize? Not just the coming of the Exodus, right? But it's literally like God Himself walking through the pieces of animal. So this is God's own death march through the animals. It's really tremendous. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe one that kind of sheds light on this. Let me read it to you. This is Jeremiah chapter thirty-four. I think it's 34. Uh, Jeremiah 34 kind of gives a little bit of background to see that ancient Near Eastern world, this this practice was kind of customary. People knew what this all meant. Uh, it says, I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the hat, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. That's what I mean by this is God walking through the path of death with Abraham. Because just as men, uh, I don't know, <laughs> 18, 19, somewhere, right? So just as men would walk through this death path, indicative of a maledictory oath for themselves, this is God walking symbolically, showing that he was willing to walk the path of death. And so what I'm saying is this is definitely foreshadowing the cross, that Jesus walked the path of death for us in order to make God's covenant promises good, right? In order to give us the, in, in the inheritance. It's almost as if we can ask of the gospel, how will we know? And the response is Jesus saying, I walked the path of death for you. And ultimately what happens is that path of death is transformed by the believer into the path of life, right? It's death for him. It's life for us. Isn't that amazing? And so, yeah, all of this is right here. It's clear as mud. Maledictory oath. Who takes the oath in this covenant? Well, God takes the oath... At least initially, if you go back to Genesis 15, right? By taking the path of death, God is taking the oath. But remember what we called the covenant. It's dichotomous, okay? And remember what we said, it's got two levels. This toucan Sam thing over here is just killing me. Oh, what did I say? 21. Uh, Because I want to elaborate on these two levels, okay? Uh, and what we're talking about here, two levels, uh, and, and basically you can just alliterate and just keep, you know, uh, really it's two principles, uh, two realities. Anybody want to help me? Uh, two covenants, we could even say, just like Galatians says. Two posterities, two lands. Becoming clear? What are the two lands? promised in the covenant Abraham there's two lands which is the first one you'll be safe right there Canaan it's the other one what's that yes that's right it's the heavenly Canaan right so it's not just the earthly Canaan um we wouldn't even fit (laughs) you go to Israel with us you know in a couple months right you're gonna see Israel the land of Canaan is really small that can't possibly be the fulfillment of what this is talking about. We wouldn't even fit. We'd overpopulate. You're like, who's moving out? I'm, I'm staying in the land of Canaan. <laughs> I want the promised land. You go somewhere else, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's actually talking about two lands. It's a geophysical uh, level, and then there is a spiritual level, a heavenly level, a supernal level, as they call it. Supernal just means relating to the heavenly things, okay? Any questions about that? You see, this is what's emerging out of this covenant. It's dichotomous. It has to be. Anybody else? Any, any questions? I want to go slow, but I, 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 I recognize I need to make progress too. So it's a dichotomous covenant bound by maledictory oath that promises salvation to Abraham's spiritual 
seed. Okay, who's Abraham's spiritual seed? Well, go back to Galatians. Galatians makes it crystal clear. We're doing theology, by the way, the way that dispensationalist theologians tell us we're not allowed to do theology. We're not supposed to go to the New Testament for answers about the Old Testament. We're supposed to just let the Old Testament speak. Well, that's not fair because I'm saying, like, look, if God is the one that gives you the cheat sheet, (laughs) then it must be that the test is not forbidding that you use the cheat sheet, right? (laughs) So thankfully, we need that, right? So I'm grateful that he gives us you know, the answers to all of these perplexing questions, okay? Not that you cannot from, this is very important. Let's, let's, let's just stop here for a second because I don't want you guys to misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying the Old Testament doesn't really teach these things. The New Testament is needed because without the New Testament, you couldn't prove that this is, this is what the Old Testament's teaching. No, 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 no. The New Testament helps us to understand the original intent of the Old Testament. It's not like we're going to the Old Testament in order to inject some foreign meaning into the text of the Old Testament. Everybody get that? That's a big difference. Uh, Scholars are, in fact, uh, excommunicated from seminaries on the basis of that type of hermeneutic. Uh, What they're saying is that the, the Old Testament doesn't really teach this, it's that the apostles just sort of reimagined the Old Testament in their own way and sort of injected a foreign meaning into the Old Testament. They just kind of used the Old Testament to their advantage. That is not what we are saying. What we're saying is that one author of the Bible, which is who? God, the Holy Spirit, he inspired it. It's God's book, ultimately. There's the divine authorship of Scripture, even before the human authorship of Scripture. He gets the precedence, right? And as the divine author of Scripture, this is one organic revelation. He is the author of the whole thing. And when he reveals Galatians, when he reveals Romans, and when he reveals the New Testament to us, what he's giving us is more of the same revelation. It is not two different revelations, okay? And so... That's why you have texts like this, uh, Galatians chapter 3. I know this is hard, it's perplexing, but I'm, it's got to be easy too for you guys because I'm bringing you back to the same scripture every week, <laughs> hoping that it's just going to stick. You know? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned for him for righteousness. Therefore, uh, That's important too, verse 6 there, because you're going to read in Genesis over and over, that on the basis of Abraham's obedience, he gets rewarded. So you're almost tempted to think, oh, see, it was because Abraham obeyed. That's why God saved him. (laughs) No. Here we're being told he was saved on the basis of faith. Okay? He believed. And that that was imputed to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he is saved in the same way that we are. And it says, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Wow. Now, how many Jews do we have in the room today? Where's Shelly? I know know one. (laughs) You have some Jewish blood flowing in you? (laughs) Okay. Well, it looks like we're full of goyims in here, right? Gentiles. And how can we, therefore, rightly be called the children of Abraham? By faith. By faith, you and I are more the children of Abraham than the Jew who lives in Jerusalem, prays to the Western Wall, and rejects Jesus Christ and the Gospel. Isn't that remarkable? Oh, and they reject it. Uh, they, they reject it. I've had conversations with rabbis in the rabbi tunnel there in Jerusalem, and they vehemently detest Christianity. They detest it. They're not, like, friendly to it. You know, hey, we're Jewish, you're Christians, okay. No. If you read the Talmud and the, Mishra, the, the, the Midrash material, lots of blasphemies against Christianity and Christ specifically. Too blasphemous to even mention, in fact. Um, it says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying to him what? All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Now, here's what's interesting. Verses 10 down to verse 14, in one sense is parenthetical. He's going to return to the argument of verse uh, 8. All the nations will be blessed in you. 
because he's going to elaborate. What do you mean by in you, right? He picks that up again in verses 15 to 19. He specifies that in you means in your messianic seed. So back to my definition. This oath promises salvation to Abraham's spiritual seed through faith in Abraham's messianic seed. You see that? And there you see that in verse, where's that at, guys? Uh, Verse 16, right? In Galatians uh, 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural. I love the specificity of the New Testament, right? He does not say seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Um, this is why we can make such huge canonical sweeping statements about the Abrahamic covenant because <laughs> we're being told that the original promise, the original oath that God gave to Abraham was ultimately an oath that bound the promises to the Messiah and that it was ultimately going to be through him uh, that everybody is going to be saved and blessed. Now, okay, so... It's a maledictory oath. It's for the spiritual seed of Abraham through the messianic seed, singular seed of Abraham, singular, one seed, one seed. (laughs) Got to remember that part. Come on, man. Paul wrote a whole verse to emphasize one seed, right? Messianic seed. And then what is the um, what is the result? Salvation for Abraham's spiritual seed through through faith in Abraham's messianic seed. Here it is, resulting in heavenly inheritance. Uh, didn't we? Um, yeah, that's what the blessing of Abraham is really all about. It's a heavenly inheritance. And if you go back, remember we did this last time, one, of, one of the last couple of weeks that we did this. But remember. Every time that God promises to him a land, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, to the land which I will show you, right? Um, Genesis chapter 13, look there. Genesis 13, remember we looked at this, verses 14 all the way down to verse 18. God tells Abraham to look. Which direction, which direction is Abraham to look? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's supposed to look to the four corners of the earth, right? And that's why Romans says in Romans chapter 4, uh, uh, verse 13, that Abraham was actually promised the land of Canaan. What land? The world. He was promised the cosmos. When? Well, when God told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, but in order for you, Abraham, to understand the promise of the land, here's what I want you to do. I want you to act it out so that w- so that it'll be a reminder, a perpetual reminder and a prophetic reminder that what I'm promising you as you look east, west, north, south, is that this promise is ultimately a glo- of global expansion. It will go to the ends of the earth, so to speak. Yeah. Just a eschatological question, but yep. I want to confirm what I'm thinking. Is Kay. this where the symbolism of four comes from when you read Revelation, as well as when Jesus speaks about gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth? Mm. Well, you mean like the four corners of the earth? Well, that's just a that's just ultimately a euphemism to speak of the whole world. Right. We talk about that still today. I mean, we still use that same euphemism today. Right. We say, you know, I'll go to the ends of the earth. Right. (laughs) We don't really mean that there's no end to the earth in a sense. Right. Right. I think in the sense of, I think in one sense, right, that Abraham's children were to come from all the corners of the world. I mean, even Jesus says that, right? They'll come from east and west and south, and they'll recline at table with Abraham. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Wow, that's incredible. You know what I mean? I don't know how a dispensationalist handles that, you know? Any other questions? Right. <clears throat> uh, so it promises uh, the heaven. Let's just make it real simple. Turn to Hebrews again, right? Hebrews, so fantastic. 
so amazing that Hebrews just, I mean, it's just so amazing what was going on here. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, we kind of get a, the story of Abraham sort of retold to us again. Don't, don't think it's too late to ask your question, by the way. Ask your question if you have it. Okay, and if I don't see you raising your hand, don't lose your don't don't mess up your your blood flow. Just just shout it out. <laughs> okay, uh, verse eight says, "By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going." Wow, it's amazing. Uh, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as a foreigner. Uh, as in a foreign land, and that's so amazing there, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations. And, and their foundations mean something like real foundations, true foundations, right? Ultimately, eternal foundations. Right? It's amazing because uh, in chapter 12, I think it's verse 27, God is about to say that he's going to shake everything. Remember? And only the things that cannot be shaken will remain type of thing, right? That whole language. So it's like he's looking for a city that cannot be shaken, that cannot, you know, fall away with the present world, right? He's looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. You know, if God is the architect, he's the designer. If God is the builder, then he builds it with the appropriate divine strength. In other words, this is all language saying that he is looking for an eternal city. He's looking for the city of God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to receive uh, conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even one man and, uh, uh, of one man and him as good as dead. At that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, here we go. All these died in faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, and all the patriarchs that go with them. They died in faith, all of, and going back, you know, Noah, everybody, died in faith, what? Without receiving the promises. So basically saying, whatever physical, literal promises came to pass, they did not receive the promises. Now, this is really interesting. I'm going to dwell Right here, just for a sec. I'll come back to this. It says, For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country which they came out, or when they went out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it were, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Yeah, of course, because this is the city of God. This is the city that God built for them. They're not seeking to be identified with the city of man. Right? The man made metropolises of the world like Babel. Right? But they're seeking to be identified with the city of God. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, call, to be called their God. Now, what did I say I was going to come back to? Um, no. What did I say I was going to come back to? Oh, yes. Um, oh, where it says, you know, if, yeah, no, you're right. Thinking of the country from which they went, they would have had opportunity to return. Now, this is interesting. Go to Nehemiah. Okay. Uh, we'll go to just a couple places that I, at least I can think of that I can remember. Where's Nehemiah? I can never find Nehemiah. You guys find it? I can't ever find it. It makes me be ashamed. There it is. Yeah, yeah. Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, verse, uh, man, this is so, this is, this is so amazing. It's kind of like, where do you start, you know? Yeah, okay, let's start in, start in the prayer of the people here. Verse 5, Nehemiah 9, verse 5. Oh, may your glorious name be exalted and exalted above the blessing, above all blessing and praise. You alone, O Lord, you have made the heavens and the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. Uh, what's that taking us back to, by the way? 
makes the earth, makes the sea, makes everything in the sea. Creation, that's right. So what we have in the, bir- in the, in, in the sense of the rebirth of the nation here, we have sort of a picture of a recreational act. Okay, just kind of write that down, jot it down, or remember it. But anyway, it says, And the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God, here it is, who chose Abraham, or Abram, and brought him out of Ur of Chaldees, and gave him the name Abraham. You found, that's what he does to all of us, right? He finds us, we're a certain person, he changes us, we're supposed to become a different person. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's what regeneration, conversion is all about. Uh, yeah, that's right. In heaven, he'll give us a name that nobody knows except for him. Right? You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, pe- uh, Parasite, Jebusite. If you're not careful, you'll say pepperoni or something like that. So you've got to be very careful. <laughs> or paparazzi or something. Like that. It's not. It's parasite. <laughs> Parasite. Something like that. The Jebusite the Gergeshite, uh, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled, watch this now, guys. You have, this is very important, you have fulfilled your promise. Wow. For you are righteous. So what is that saying there? Now turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy... I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9. Okay, look at, the, look at this verse right here. Kind of in, you know, in tandem with Nehemiah 9 there. The emphasis of you have done all this. Right? You have fulfilled your word. Wow, that's interesting. Keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. Right? You have fulfilled your word that you spoke, you know, because you are righteous. And then what does it say here? Verse 9. I spoke to you at that time saying, I am not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. And to make it clear, may the Lord the God of your fathers. Who's the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he has promised you. Isn't that so remarkable? Deuteronomy 1, Nehemiah chapter 9, what they're telling us is that at the typological level, the, Abraham, the, the covenant with Abraham was fulfilled. That God did what he said he would do. He passed through the parts. He, passed, he took the maledictory oath and he fulfilled his promise. And in a sense, in a sense, God has nothing more to do for Abraham. He's already given him the land. He's already given him a great fecundity. What does that mean? Children, that's right. Posterity, a great multitude of posterity. Uh, I love these words. I know they're like, am I going to really use that when I'm talking about, you know, I love it. Anyway, um, it's kind of what I live for. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, so he did all of that. He gave him the land. He gave him the descendants. He multiplied. Moses says, there's too many of you. I can't even handle it. There's so many of you. What am I going to do? Millions of you, right? Maybe a couple million at the Exodus, right? Isn't that kind of the, for, yeah, anyway. So, so, so therefore, in my definition here, since you guys have it all memorized in your mind perfectly, I mention how that this is a dichotomous covenant bound by maledictory oath promised uh, that promises salvation to Abraham's spiritual seed. That's the believer, according to Genesis and other uh, Galatians and other places, through faith in Abraham's messianic seed. That's Jesus Christ, resulting in a heavenly inheritance, Hebrews 11, other places, while simultaneously promising patriarchal blessings to Abraham's physical seed, and an earthly inheritance through obedience. Ah, here we go. So, um, let's, uh, since we're talking about two levels, let's keep going here on the, on the issue of two levels. So now we're talking about, you know, um, where is it at? Posterities, right? So now we're talking about two different posterities. You have the physical posterity of, 
of Abraham who, was, who, who, who are promised these earthly blessings and God fulfilled all of that. But notice what it says. Uh, notice what my definition says, not scripture. It's not a thus saith the Lord, but it's, uh, it's important about what God says. That their inheritance, their physical blessing, will be through obedience. Okay, so turn to Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17, and we'll end with this real quick. And then I'll whet our appetite and probably get us all confused, so you have to come back next week. <laughs> Unravel everything again, okay? The reason I say, and the reason theologians say, that the Abrahamic covenant is a dichotomous covenant is because it operates on two levels, two level. That's not good grammar. Two levels, and these two levels introduce two principles. And one of the principles that it introduces is the principle of two can Sam's in my way, so I'll write it over here. Okay. Uh, uh, well, we saw the principle of grace. You're saved by grace through faith. And then the other principle is works. Or, as I stipulate in my definition, obedience. And where do we get that? Genesis 17, beginning in verse 9. I mean, 1 through 9 or 1 through 8 is repeating a lot of the themes that we already talked about. It's so much, we don't have time. I just want to show you the conditional character of the covenant. Okay? Because there is conditional aspects to the Abrahamic covenant. And what is the condition? It's bound up with the pledge or the token or the sign of the covenant. And here it is. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which I made be, uh, that you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout their generations. A servant who is born in the house, uh, in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants or even slaves. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought excuse me, with your money shall be surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. This is a lot here. But an uncircumcised male, here, here, this is important. But an uncircumcised male is who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people and he has broken my covenant. Interesting. So now we're being told that the Abrahamic covenant in, in, in addition to being conditional, can be broken and you can be cut off from the covenant. Uh, n- notice what it says. He will be cut off from what? From his people. And so what I'm saying is that it seems as if what is at stake here in the conditional aspect, the works-based aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is fidelity to the nation of Israel and it is belonging or sort of participation or membership in the covenant community. That's what's at stake. And so by their obedience, they will maintain that covenant. By their disobedience, they'll be cut off from the covenant. And so this this is only operative on the physical level. Any questions about that? And by the way, I know what's kind of the elephant in the room for some of us anyway. This is absolutely where, this dichotomous concept, this is exactly where Baptists and Presbyterians, we part ways texts. You know, uh, this is where we part ways. Because they would say it's like, absolutely not. Uh, The covenant with Abraham is, although it may have some conditional aspects to it, is ultimately a monolithic covenant of grace. Uh, And so everyone participates in the covenant of grace even Abraham and all of his children. So this is preparing us <laughs> for the concept of infant baptism. Okay, so what they would say is that circumcision is replaced by baptism. All the children were circumcised, the male children were circumcised. So what does that show is that you could be a child and still participate in the covenant. Therefore, in the new covenant, you can be a child and participate in the covenant by the same sign. See what I'm saying? But Baptists would say, no, 
What replaced circumcision is not water baptism. What replaced physical circumcision is what? Spiritual circumcision, right? The same circumcision that that, that Moses talks about uh, that had to happen in the heart. In the heart. Yes, sir? It's too late. I can't answer it. It's too late, (laughs) K-Dub. Sorry. You're out of time, man. (laughs) Now, go ahead. Go ahead. Mm-mm. No, they identified with, they identified with uh, the sign of circumcision by faith. Uh, they identified it by their commitment to be faithful to uh, that whatever household they belonged to. Uh, so it was it was vicariously through the male. That's the best that you can do. And so they would say that's one of the aspects of the new covenant is that it's not male female specific. So, you know, they, you know, a, a woman participated in the covenant sign by her faith, her trust in it, her confidence in it, um, identifying with it. Same thing. I mean, not her husband, but just anyone in the community. Yeah, her, her brother, her, you know, yeah, her brother, her father. Yeah. What's that? That's a good question. I think that that's a good question, and I think that supports the two levels, is that on the one level, let's say a woman belonged to a household that broke the covenant, right? They, did, they, didn't, they didn't engage in obedience uh, to the sign. Um, what I would say is that she may, be, she may suffer being cut off geophysically from the covenant, but she could still, by faith, have access to the deeper level of the covenant, which is the covenant of grace. You know what I mean? Which is, in other words, God saving her by grace through faith, despite the reproach that her family has brought upon her and her being exiled from uh, the community. But those are good questions. I don't know that I have the final answer on all that, but yeah. Isn't there a wife who her husband circumcised their son? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right, but it's uh, 2.30, so... <laughs> God bless you guys.